In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Amen. The account of Jesus' transfiguration we just heard in Matthew's Gospel is one of my favorite parts of the Bible to hear. I like this story because it has all the parts to it of a really good story. I mean, we have Jesus' supernatural, physical transformation as his face changes and his clothes become dazzlingly white. Mark's account of the story says that his clothes became glistening, intensely white, as no one on earth could bleach them. At the same time, there's the appearance of Moses and Elijah, which I picture in my head happening something like the end of a Star Wars movie, where Obi-Wan and Yoda, two iconic role models and mentors, but both long since dead, appear in a cloud of mist, looking vibrant and alive, with a slight glow around them. But if you combine all these things with the comical antics of Peter and the disciples, we have a really good story. And honestly, it would be easy to stop the story right there. We would probably be satisfied with simply hearing how Jesus was physically transfigured into his full and divine glory. We would probably be satisfied with having a good chuckle about how Peter fumbled around and couldn't think of anything better to do than build some houses so that Moses and Elijah could stay there a little longer. We would probably be satisfied because it feels good to have our faith affirmed. Way up on that mountain, there was no doubt in anyone's mind that Jesus was the Messiah. Even God says, this is my son, the beloved. Listen to him. But the story doesn't stop there, does it? Our lectionary from which our readings are chosen stops our reading this morning when we're on top of that mountain. But if we keep reading just a few verses after this mountaintop experience, we'll get what Paul Harvey might call the rest of the story. See, after their surreal mountaintop experience, Jesus and his disciples literally descend back into reality. And the first thing that happens is that they're approached by a man who has a son who's suffering from some sort of epilepsy. In a heart-wrenching plea, the man shouts to Jesus, Lord, have mercy on my son. It's a really drastic shift from God's proclamation of Jesus as God's own son just a few lines earlier. But we then hear how the man had begged Jesus' disciples to cast out the demon that was possessing his son, but they were unable to do so. But I wonder if they actually were unable to heal the boy or if perhaps their hearts and their minds were still too busy basking in the glory of God they had just witnessed the day before to realize what actually they could do for him. Of course, Jesus was there to clean up the mess left by the disciples. He rebuked the demon and it came out of him and the boy was cured instantly. Done. We may not have many great tall mountains in Alabama, So we might have to stretch our imaginations just a little bit. But what is it about these mountaintop experiences and divine revelation? Why do we need or think we need a physical separation between our encounters with God 
and the common world. And one of the other great glory of God moments of the Bible that we hear about this morning, God meets Moses on Mount Sinai. However, Moses, whose own face became so physically transfigured after seeing God that he had to shield it from view, Moses was charged by God to bring God's commandments to the Israelites and therefore into the whole world. But in this instance, God never came down from that mountain. And to our knowledge, no other Israelite ever went up to be in the presence of God. But everything changed with the incarnation of Jesus Christ. God was no longer a distant, separate being who was somehow directing our lives from afar. In the person of Jesus of Nazareth, God and humanity became intimately and inseparably connected. That was the point Jesus' disciples failed to grasp way up there on that mountain. They didn't need to build houses for Moses and Elijah to keep God's presence with them on the earth. God in Jesus Christ was with them. And through Jesus' death and resurrection, continues to be with us today. Our mountaintop encounters with God may take many different forms. It might literally be standing on a mountain and viewing a beautiful sunset over the valley when you feel connected with the God who created it all. It might be spending a week in that Crucio where the Holy Spirit is so alive and active that you can actually feel the Spirit's presence in the air. It might actually be here at St. John's Church on a Sunday morning as you're walking back to your pew after making your communion and you realize that you actually just received the body and blood of Christ into your own. Like the disciples, these encounters with the divine can and often do happen when we least expect them to. But what happens when we come down from that mountaintop? What happens after we bask in the glory of God? Are we like the disciples who were so enamored with that divine encounter that they were unable or unwilling to share the experience with others who for some reason were unable to join them in God's holy place? Do we fall into the trap of trying to keep God in a particular location or isolate our knowledge of God only to a special group of like-minded individuals? As many of you know, Jeannie and I lived in Manhattan before moving to Sewanee to complete seminary. <clears throat> One of my favorite churches to visit was the Church of the Transfiguration. Known as the little church around the corner, the parish was widely known for two major aspects of its life. Its beautiful and rich liturgy and its long history of radical inclusion and social justice. Most notably, it was the first church to accept that scandalous and growing population of actors in New York City around the turn of the century. And this eventually led the church to become the headquarters of the Episcopal Actors Guild. And a long lineage of famous Episcopal actors have since called the little church home, but perhaps its most notable parishioner was none other than Tallulah Bankhead. And it was reportedly during one of the church's beautiful, solemn high masses that she was attending. After the thoroughfare went past her down the aisle in his flowing cassock and surplus, 
with clouds of smoke billowing out of the thurible as she belted out, darling, I love your dress, but your purse is on fire. <laughs> Sorry, Tula. <laughs> But what made that parish so special was that the aptly named Church of the Transfiguration used that church as its proverbial mountaintop. The people who gathered there week in and week out met God and had divine experiences both in the liturgy and in their interactions with each other. But more than that, they were, after they were spiritually fed and nourished, they descended from their mountain and went out into the community, acting as the body of Christ in their broken city. That's what we are called to do also. And some of the time, most of the time, that can mean coming down from our Christian high horse and engaging with those who we might disagree with and embodying God's love to those who would otherwise never know it. How will our community experience the love of God that we share together each week if we don't carry it to them when we go down our mountain, which is actually right out those doors? Through our baptism into Jesus' death and resurrection, we become nothing less than the body of Christ on earth. And each time we receive the Eucharist, we are reminded of our identity and are nourished so we can carry his gospel into the world that desperately needs to hear it. So go. Go to your mountain, wherever that may be, and experience God. Be amazed and long for that feeling to last forever. But when you finally have to leave that mountain and descend back, share it. Tell others what you know about the greatness of God. Heal the sick in Jesus' name. We are the body of Christ, and Christ is in you.